be really informed, you need to know what's behind the national news stories and what's going on in your neighborhood. Consider This, a new podcast from NPR and WNYC, helps you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're listening to a video that a woman named Claire Crisp made several years ago while she was living in Bristol, England. It shows her daughter, Matilda. She's about three. It is a beautiful, sunny day. She's with her older brother and sister in the backyard. Her long blonde hair is in a loose ponytail. And at first, it's like any home video a parent might have. But if you look a little closer, it's clear something is wrong. Matilda is completely out of it. They start to call her. Her eyes are completely closed. She's staggering, like she's drunk, right? She looks like she's drunk. Wait just a minute. Claire began taking these videos because she knew something wasn't right with Matilda, but she didn't know what. There came a point with the videos that was so upsetting, I just thought, I can't, I can't keep filming this. During the day, Matilda was exhausted. She just couldn't stay awake. She fell asleep in the swimming pool during a swim lesson. She also would fall asleep at the breakfast table and literally her head would go in her bowl of cereal. This is Matilda's dad, Oliver. There were times at breakfast when we had to, I mean, it sounds crazy, we had to lift her head out of her bowl because we were worried that she would drown in her milk. But then at night, she couldn't stay asleep. She was constantly waking up from vivid nightmares. She was inconsolable. The reason we kept on having to get up to her in the night was that she was crying out a lot of the time in terror. When Matilda first started to have symptoms, her parents did what any parent might do. They took her to the hospital. But doctors there couldn't find an answer. They thought, maybe Matilda has a brain tumor. But the scans came back negative. Leukemia? Nope. Lyme disease? Nothing. Matilda became a mystery. And doctors began to give up. They told the family they thought Matilda's symptoms were psychological, that Matilda and her mom belonged in the psych ward. Making the videos was this last-ditch effort to show somebody, anybody, that Matilda was actually really sick. I took the videos back in on the Monday. Matilda was asleep in the stroller. One of her regular physicians had gone on vacation, so a doctor who was filling in agreed to take a look. She looked at the videos a couple of times. It was just him in this tiny little room. There was no one else on the unit. And he was so silent and quiet, I was thinking, oh, you know, I don't know if this is a waste of time. And then he looked at them again and he said to me, I know what it is. I've never seen it in a child under 17, but I I know what it is. I know what it is, it's narcolepsy. This is Only Human. I'm Mary Harris. No British doctor had ever seen someone as young as Matilda with narcolepsy. Figuring out why she and a handful of other kids got sick became an even bigger mystery. And unraveling it has become one doctor's life's work. You probably know that having narcolepsy means you fall asleep in the middle of the day. But narcolepsy is actually a lot more than that. This diagnosis explained all of Matilda's symptoms, even the weird ones. People with narcolepsy can slip into a dream state at any time, even while they're awake. 
that's what makes them wobbly on their feet. And Matilda's vivid nightmares were actually hallucinations, dreams she couldn't escape, even when she woke up. Doctors in the UK had no clue what to do next, and Claire was desperate. And that's how she ended up emailing a doctor 5,000 miles away. What do you do? You search on the internet and you figure out who is the best. And I, I think I'm, I'm one of the best. <laughs> Dr. Emmanuel Mignot runs the Sleep Center at Stanford University out of a nondescript office park in Palo Alto, California. The lobby is wallpapered with patents. He started working on narcolepsy in the mid-80s, mostly for the intellectual challenge. At the time, people weren't even sure the disorder was real. He thought, maybe if I work hard enough, I can figure this whole disease out. One thing that I've been kind of famous for is I discovered the cause of narcolepsy by studying these dogs with narcolepsy. Back then, he had a whole colony of dogs whose symptoms were just like Matilda's. Animal! Mignot took me to his house to meet the one narcoleptic dog he's got left, a chihuahua named Watson, who he keeps as a pet. Of course, who's the boss, the narcoleptic dog? Just like Matilda, Watson can fall asleep unexpectedly. And when he gets excited or happy, like when he's given a plate of chicken and carrots, his legs collapse out from under him. This is actually a symptom of narcolepsy, too. It's what happens when patients are suddenly struck by sleep paralysis, even though they were just conscious. You would think that he would love to, to nap with me, but unfortunately, actually, his nap are too short. Dogs like Watson help Mignot pinpoint the cause of narcolepsy in this ingenious way. First, he found the gene that causes narcolepsy in dogs. And then he discovered that gene controls one particular chemical in the brain. It's called hypocretin. Humans have it too. It's basically the hormone that keeps us awake. When Mignot decided to look for hypocretin in people with narcolepsy, he realized they don't have a drop of it. That project took 10 years, and it was, like, you know, very, very tough. <laughs> you sound really determined. Oh, yes, that's my characteristic. I don't give up. When Matilda's mom wrote to Mignot, Matilda still hadn't improved. Three months had gone by since her diagnosis, treatments weren't really helping, and no one had any idea how Matilda had gotten sick so young. It was Mignot's clinical coordinator, Molly Einan, who called Claire back. I think what stood out in my mind with Matilda was that was by far the youngest patient with real narcolepsy that I had ever had, I want to say, had touched my life. Einan was part personal assistant, part researcher, part social worker. Claire sent me a picture, too, and it was just like this beautiful baby, really. Her job was basically to help her boss add to what he calls his treasure chest— Fridges and freezers that are filled with samples from narcolepsy patients. Mostly blood, but a few dozen brains, too. They thought that blood, especially from patients like Matilda, who had just been diagnosed, might hold clues to why their hypocretin suddenly disappeared. In 2009-2010, I think you were the one that pointed that you had a lot more calls from parents about these children with narcolepsy. Well, and it, and it was... Surprising. But what started happening is I'm hearing from more and more parents and more and more of the subjects that were developing narcolepsy were skewing younger and younger. Before 2010, a young person with narcolepsy was maybe 13. But suddenly, Einan was hearing from parents of kids who were 8 and 5. 
At first, she thought it must be a fluke, like maybe they were just tracking her down on the internet. But then another family would call. Usually I was seeing three children per season, and then I saw like 17 that season or something like that. So it was a big increase, but it was not, uh, you know, like hundreds. And soon they began to hear whispers from colleagues around the world about how these kids had gotten sick, especially kids from Northern Europe, England, Finland, Sweden. I feel that part of my bothering you about having heard from more and more children, that when, as soon as that rumor or word came out from Finland, then it was more of a, Molly, what was that you were saying about more kids? You know, that it was like, now I'm going to turn around and pay attention to the fact that you've been bugging me that you're hearing from more people. Mignot turned that rumor into a hypothesis. He told Einan to phone Matilda's parents and ask them just one question. And um, she said, just want to run something by you that we've picked up. Matilda's mom still remembers this call. And she said, did Matilda have the swine flu, the H1N1 vaccine? Um, and I, the whole thing just dropped on me. And I literally went back to the day. I could even remember it was 16th of January that year when, yes, she had had the H1N1 vaccine that I had taken her to and held her arm, you know, pinned her arm down. And And Mignot's hypothesis became an international controversy. There were no answers until Marley said, Professor Mignot thinks there is a link. Up next, could understanding this side effect lead to a scientific breakthrough? So imagine you are Dr. Emmanuel Mignot you found what you think is a link between a flu shot and a pretty devastating side effect. And by the way, I want to make it clear that it's not a huge number of cases. You know, millions of people have been vaccinated, so it's not a lot. But speaking out about a vaccine, any vaccine, is extremely charged. Mignot doesn't like to call it controversial. He says this information was a hot potato. He didn't want to cause a panic. He didn't want to give fuel to anti-vaxxers. He didn't want people to think any other vaccine, perfectly safe ones, suddenly weren't. On the other hand, he didn't want anyone else to be at risk. And Mignot began suspecting this link, just as people were about to get their flu shots for the next season. So there was a possibility that we'll see a lot more cases. So you had a kind of a duty to say something. But the thing is that the 2009 flu shot was different for a lot of reasons because the 2009 flu was different. But first, the latest on the swine flu epidemic. It soon became clear the virus was transmitting quickly, leading officials to declare a pandemic. The outbreak that began in Mexico is now suspected to have reached New York City. A pandemic is what happens when a new strain of virus pops up that humans have no immunity to. Scientists think it works like this. A person who's already got the flu is infected with a second flu, usually from an animal, then the two viruses mutate together and form a kind of superflu. In 2009, the superflu came from pigs, the swine flu. Flu pandemics have only happened four times in the last hundred years. 
the one before this, in 1968, killed a million people worldwide. And that's why world health officials take them really seriously. So you see these reports about a novel strain, and what do you start thinking? At the time, since I was working for a vaccine manufacturer, I was thinking, oh my goodness. Dr. Bruce Innes is a physician. In 2009, he was working for one of the largest flu vaccine manufacturers in the world. And by the way, we hadn't really exercised our ability to put in place our pandemic response. We had a planned pandemic response, but we'd never done a live fire drill of this. His company, GSK, that had this plan sitting around for years, like in case of emergency, break glass, implement pandemic planning. The idea was to get their hands on the new virus and build a vaccine against it as quickly as possible. They had to create millions of doses of this stuff. It was like a race. It is exactly that. Delivering vaccine into the marketplace is a race against time. And putting the vaccine into a person is a race against time. And the idea is to get as many people in the population immunized ahead of being exposed to the virus as possible. In order to make as much vaccine as they could, GSK needed to boost their vaccine's effectiveness. By using something called an adjuvant, which stimulates the immune system, they were able to make 12 times as much vaccine as they would have normally. They called their vaccine Pandemrix. And even while GSK was still studying it, several countries around the world began handing it out. The authorities did that because they realized that if they waited for the completion of a clinical trial, it would delay the commencement of national vaccination programs by two to three months, and that was simply unacceptable. But in the U.S., officials felt they didn't know enough about pandemics. They didn't approve it. And there were many countries in the world that were left to scramble to put something together. Sounds like everyone was kind of making it up as they went along. Well, I think it, it is true that there was a lot that was innovated on the fly, or they made it up as they went along. The UK, Finland, and a few other countries did approve pandemics. That was the flu shot Matilda and more than 30 million other people got. So I continue to collect, you know, samples of vaccines. But what was it about this flu and this one particular brand of flu shot that caused Matilda and a handful of other people to get narcolepsy? This mystery has consumed Mignot. Once he made this connection with the flu and the flu shot, he had to prove it. But proving this link has been really hard. Even getting his hand on the vaccine has been hard. Some were given by GSK, others were given by a collaborator in Canada, a third one, I beg this other person. He keeps this stuff in a little cardboard box in a refrigerated room where he started collecting it. It's down the hall from his samples of blood and brains. We, we had to really try to find where there were some left, you know. Most people threw out the vaccines when they are not anymore used. He's gathering up these vaccines so he can pick them apart. Because his first question when he started seeing this narcolepsy link was, what's in this stuff? I think we're really leaving no stone unturned. I mean, we're really starting with the composition of the vaccine, checking everything. It's not in the manufacturer's interest to tell him very much. You know, because it's a secret. It's a trademark. I mean, they are not going to tell you exactly how they do it. 
So he started with that adjuvant, the immune booster that was controversial when pandemics came out. It derived from shark liver. Shark liver? Yes, they buy it from New Zealand, from a specific company. I had to figure that out, all of it. But soon he set this aside. Other flu shots used this stuff too, without the side effect. And there was something else. When he looked at global rates of narcolepsy in 2009, he saw something strange. And we are actually still analyzing the data right now. There were more narcolepsy cases all over the world, even in the U.S., where pandemics never got released. But in the U.S., it's not related to vaccination. It's just probably the virus itself. But we, we don't really understand exactly what happened. The virus itself. Mignot always thought the immune system is what triggers narcolepsy. Maybe the culprit here was the actual virus. So Mignot started comparing pandemics to other flu vaccines, side by side. So first we have the vaccine and we analyze its composition so that we know exactly every little pieces of virus that it contains. How many little pieces are we talking about? Uh, thousands and thousands. So the vaccine has thousands of pieces of virus in it. Yes. His theory is that one of the tiny pieces of virus in this flu shot hit some people's systems, boosted by that adjuvant, and caused an immune reaction that killed off hippocretin and caused narcolepsy. GSK, the company that created Pandemrix, denies the link. Here's a statement they gave us. Whilst people vaccinated with Pandemrix have been shown to be more likely to develop narcolepsy than those who are not, further research is needed. But meanwhile, in countries like Iceland, Finland, and the UK, governments have begun paying people who got the vaccine and then developed narcolepsy. Matilda's case goes to court this spring. How much of your work now is like flu vaccine? In my lab, it's probably right now 60%, 70%. I mean, most of it. <laughs> because the flu vaccine is the best clue we have. Mignot is obsessed with pandemics for one reason. It's given him a whole new window onto the root cause of narcolepsy. Now he feels like he's closer than he ever has been to figuring it out. Because of this virus and because of pandemics. I hope that by finding the cause of narcolepsy thanks to this vaccine, in some way it will rehabilitate it. It's at least a good thing that will happen out of a bad thing. Mignot still doesn't know which fragment of virus caused some people's immune systems to go haywire. So he's testing all of them, one by one, taking parts of the vaccine, mixing it with his treasure chest of blood samples. It took him 10 years to prove narcolepsy existed in the first place. So now it's the same. I'm just going to do it the hard way, like try every little piece until we find it. Do you think she's asleep? We can look. This is how I know. Hold on a second. A couple of years after her diagnosis, Matilda and her family moved to California to be closer to Mignot. They live in a one-story house that feels open and bright. It's sort of like walking into a really lived-in IKEA showroom. Matilda's 10 now. And even with treatment, she still has to rest a lot. So how do you, how do you know if she's asleep? While I was talking to her parents, I looked up and realized Matilda herself was nowhere to be seen. Her mom led me out the kitchen door and into the backyard, where we could look through a wall of windows and right into Matilda's bedroom. Um, you can see her bedroom is alive with toys and games and sets that she's designed. And 
baby doll. Matilda had snuck off for a nap. Just peep through. Oh, yeah, she's asleep. Yeah, so I can check. There's still no cure for narcolepsy. Matilda manages it with an intense regimen of drugs, some that keep her awake, others that help her sleep. But they're not 100%. And if I walked into her bedroom then and opened the door, she wouldn't have liked finding us standing. So I, I check that way, and then I know what, what the schedule is, and it works. When she's at home, all this looks pretty easy. But at school, it isn't. Until a few months ago, Matilda kept a bed at the back of her elementary school classroom. It was a place she could just crash. Now when she gets sleepy at school, she'll just put her head down on her desk and conk out for a few minutes. When she woke up, I asked her if she thinks about sleep differently than the rest of us. To a lot of people, sleep would be a friend, and me, it's sort of like a friend of me. It's not my friend, but it's not my enemy, exactly. So can you show me around your room? Yeah. She's got this bear. This is Mr. Coco Brown. I call him Coco. This little stuffed animal with a plaid bow around his neck has been with Matilda from the beginning, before she was sick, actually. But yeah, he's a dad and a husband. He's got a family of stuffed rabbits. This is his smallest and youngest little bunny rabbit. Her name is Flower, because she's got flowers everywhere. And every night, Matilda brings this well-worn bear to bed with her. She says it helps to have someone familiar nearby. Whenever... I'm sad or I'm like crying or something. I pretend that he talks to me and wipes away the tears. He gets the tears on his paws, but he's a good old bear. A small coda to this story. The thing about the 2009 pandemic flu response, it seems to have worked. When all was said and done, the swine flu, it killed somewhere between 200 and 400,000 people. Pandemics before that, one million, one and a half million, a hundred million. Mignot still gets his flu shot every year, but his point, science is messy. And sometimes, if you're lucky, maybe you can find some answers in that mess. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios, and this week I have a couple of thank yous. First to Bruce Innes, who didn't really have to talk to us. His next big project with an organization called PATH is a universal flu vaccine, one that would stay the same year to year. The clinical trials will start in September. Yes, ma'am. It could protect us against the next pandemic. No race against time, no need to modify the vaccine every year. Stockpiling is possible, exactly. Also, Matilda's mom has written a book about her experience with narcolepsy. You can read a chapter on our website. That's onlyhuman.org. This episode was edited by Ben Adair with production help from Joe Capriglione. Our team includes Amanda Aronchik, Kenny Malone, Elaine Chen, Julia Longoria, Jillian Weinberger, and as of just this week, Christopher Johnson. Our technical director is Casey Means. Tony Phillips is the Vice President of On-Demand Content for WNYC. And I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you soon. 
Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Torina Endowment Fund, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation. Thank you.